Hello, and welcome to That's Science, the podcast exploring the meaning of science today. I am your host, Susan O'Flynn, and this is Is That Science? Just before I get properly into the intro, I want to give a super quick shout out to Amelia for her Pint of Science event next week. She's got some super guests on the lineup, and if you like That Science, you will love a Pint of Science. (laughs) I definitely can't wait, and it'll be so much fun. We're going to have some more details on our Instagram and our Twitter. This week, I'll be talking to Dr. Vladimir Yankovic about the political language of climate change. Dr. Yankovic is a lecturer on my course for the crisis of nature for this semester, and the philosophical approach he brings to his teaching about the climate crisis is incredibly thought-provoking and has helped develop a lot of my own perspectives. So I was very happy when he agreed to come on here and talk to me a bit about the history of the climate crisis and its developments as a politically charged issue. So thank you, Vlad, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hi, Vlad, and welcome to Is That Science? Thank you for having me. Just before we start talking about this, do you want to tell our listeners a bit about yourself? Sure. So I'm Vlad, uh, and I'm a reader in History of Science and Atmospheric Humanities, and I've been at the university for many years in the Center of History of Science, Technology and Medicine, which is in the School of Medical Sciences. My background is in history and philosophy of science, and specifically in history of atmospheric sciences from 1700s until today worked in various projects in my life, including urban climatology, and more recently, the relationship between the Soviet and the American climate scientists during the 1980s, during the height of the Cold War. So uh, that's in, uh, in a nutshell. Well, that's perfect. Thank you. So before we get started talking about the climate crisis and the language around it, how did the knowledge of climate change really emerge into the cultural mainstream? Because, I mean, there's always been a concern about the changing climates as a response to human activity, but how did it come into the cultural mainstream? So I'll tell you uh, uh, an anecdote uh, that comes from a research of a colleague of mine found out in, in the archives uh, that in, when Margaret Thatcher was first informed about the possibility that climate change will have an effect on British economy, she was some, somewhat bemused and somewhat confused about that fact, asked the, the minister at the time, are you saying that I should be worried about the weather? So even by the 1980s, it was relatively rare to see people and in, in politicians, those who are very well informed, to believe that climate and weather will have a significant impact on society. Although, as you probably know yourself, Susan, it's, it's extremely difficult to pinpoint the date or a person or the time in which these things are becoming mainstream. But if I were asked to choose one year and one event, I would say it's 1988, and it was the testimony of James Hansen, the American climate scientist who was working at the time at the Columbia School of Climate, and uh, who testified in front of the American Congress and claimed that the hottest summer to date in American uh, recorded history 1988 was 99% results of anthropogenic climate change somewhat facetious from today's perspective, but it garnered a lot of attention, partly because it was very hot that year in Washington, D.C., and partly because of the same year there was a conference in Toronto on climate, and as well, there was the year of the foundation of the International Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. So 1988 can be claimed to be kind of a a point in which a lot of people, especially in the Western, probably say American media, 
sphere started to talk more about climate change than than before. Although this is not to say that many members of the public knew about that in the 70s and in the in the 80s, although the story is somewhat complicated for the 70s. We may touch upon that later. When it came into the cultural mainstream, are we thinking it was it a political issue? Because now it is. Do you think there's always been that politicization of the issue or...? Not always is the brief answer to that, although people have realized very early in the 20th century that changes in climate have, have an effect on societies and economies. So in that sense, yes, it was realized that climate, climate in any form and any change is a social phenomenon. Right. Now, what happened in the, in the 1970s is interesting. Namely, there was a series of climate anomalies that created a lot of... Uh, agricultural fairies around the world in the Sahel. Was a, there was a worldwide sort of agricultural crisis as a result of climate anomalies. That came to the attention of some policymakers and the scientists and many other opinion leaders around the world to claim that the climate anomalies happening in the early 1970s are indicating that the state will probably be going into a climatic seesaw situation in which it would be difficult to predict the agricultural production. And keep in mind, in the 1970s during the Cold War, food and food security were tools of geopolitical power and balance because of the export and import and because of the presence of food in the so-called third world. We see that today, even with the Ukrainian crisis, how the food is continuing to play a role in, the, in these realms. So the governments quickly realized that climate is emerging not simply as how what's the weather going to be like and what is the good season to go for your skiing or your vacation in the Caribbean, but rather that it has a direct and a major impact on world economies and geopolitical balance of power. So by 1978, at least several countries and the United States in particular have passed the so-called National Climate Act, which as its as a primary financial had a role to increase the productivity of the American American economy by gaining enough knowledge about climate in order to develop a systematic foresight of the long-term and mid-term investments in, keep in mind that this is still not at the level of thinking about anthropogenic climate change as a CO2-driven or the greenhouse gas-driven. This is generally any kind of climate change that has an adverse effect on human affairs. So after 1978, the climate has effectively become a part of the national developed during the 1980s. You can really say that climate is an issue as politics, as economic issue emerges during the 1970s and then is enshrined in these major legislative and organizational and institutional processes that then develop into the 80s. Again, I want to emphasize this is not the greenhouse gas-driven climate change, although scientists at the time recognized that this is probably one of the causes of these climate. I'm interested that you say that there's a kind of overlap between climate change and economics. Was there ever a humanitarian aspect to that? I mean, nowadays we're very acutely aware of the of the humanitarian crises that will result yeah. from the climate crisis. In that era, are they very much so aware of the 
catastrophic human cost as a result of climate change or was it still very much so framed in terms of economy? Absolutely. I mean, in, in, uh, when you think about the Sahel crisis in the 1970s, this was a humanitarian catastrophe. Whenever you have the failure of agricultural produce, you will have a humanitarian catastrophe. So this is this goes one with, with, with another. So when I say economy, I mean generally the welfare of societies, which was being affected at that time. And, and, and it's something that's been recognized as something that became a part of the policy. And so thinking about climate, we have to understand that this is not something that is happening outside of society, outside of this things was something that is that is the parcel in which we live because regardless of the technological advances and this was an argument that was kept being being repeated during the 1970s we thought that we were somehow climate immune by the level of our technological development the infrastructure it turns out that no matter how much we had this know-how about preventing ourselves from the disasters we were still relatively powerless when it came to large-scale anomalies and so this was the kind of a really sobering recognition which came at the kind of the end of the long trend of technophilia or the love of technology and the love of success of the post-world war which which thought that we have finally liberated ourselves from the shackles of the old age and we were now able to fly to the moon and yet we're not able to provide bread to people in Central Africa. I kind of want to pivot now into talking about the climate crisis in the modern day. I mean we're very acutely aware you've given such a brilliant outline of development of climate change as an economic issue but I really want to talk about nowadays we're very acutely aware of the sense of urgency. I mean that's also facilitated by you know the immediacy of the language i mean we have the climate crisis do you think that's particularly helpful when we're talking about it well you know there is a history behind that particular language even in the 1980s there were some prominent scientists who said it's better to exaggerate the risk in order to push for policy. So that explains it. This was, uh, these are the words of a, of a famous climate scientist, Stephen Schneider, who said it and probably regretted it because a lot of climate skeptics during the 1990s used his works to show that this was all a conspiracy. Uh, it was never a conspiracy. It was uh, a well-meaning statement that suggested that we need to do everything in order to promote and accelerate action. The problem is climate change is, I feel a little weird saying these things here, and it's not a simple issue. Would you agree? I would agree. Uh, yeah, so let's, let's, let's try with that very simple statement. I think most of the listeners would agree that it's not a simple issue. Something that it is presented as a simple issue, and I believe that the problem is with the misrepresentation of climate change is a simple issue. By, by that, I don't mean that anyone is unaware of the complexity of science behind it, but I think that there is a assumption that if we all push together and we all think alike and that we all become nice and good and beautiful soul that we can solve the problem in a relatively normal time frame. The reason why I say this is the com- climate change is, a, is an extremely complex issue. It is not an environmental issue per se. It started to be seen as an environmental issue because it was constructed by the scientific discourse and scientific. It turns out that climate change is primarily an issue of development, an issue of economy, of course, every, you know, developmental issue. And this is not the first time that's been said that people who have written, published on this issue and claim that the reason why we're not able to fix the problem, we're not able to address the the problem properly is because we are misdiagnosing climate change as being about uh, ecosystems, as being about uh, the disaster and forest fires and all of that thing. Generally, when things like that don't happen in your neighborhood, climate change doesn't exist for you. What we need to understand is the climate change is the process 
of the market transition. Now, market transition is something we can talk about because it's in the hands of politicians, in the hands of populations, in the hands of uh, large business lobbies uh, and coordinators of international policy of trade. When we recognize that climate change is in the hands of these people, right, then we'll be able to think about some sort of an effective strategy. Okay, And I think a lot of people recognize that that's the fact that is happening, of course, with the help of a large public uh, resentment towards the current apathy and, and, and stagnation in policy. But it's important to recognize that this is not only about preventing forest fires, flooding, and droughts, which of course are a result of the changing climate, but these things in themselves will never make significant long-term impact on the policy on which the rest of the population unaffected by these disasters will depend on the daily bread. When you look at the developing countries around the world, they say, why would I curb my carbon emissions when the developed world has not been curbing the, these emissions for the last 50 years and have reached the level in which they can afford now to be green? And they want us to be green. Of course, this is being addressed in various forums, and this is not as simple as I present. But this is the question that's been raised very early on in 1992 in Rio, when people say, well, you know, we don't, we don't want to implement you know, mitigation policies because this will affect our economy. So clearly, how do you have all the countries around the world agree? Because this is a global issue. How do we have global agreement, which is based on national assemblies, that this will work? And that's why we have the I'm interested that you brought in the idea of other, I'm hesitant to use the word, developing countries. But, you know, there's a sense in wealthier countries, we have the privilege to talk about clean energy and shifting our energy sources. And we have that. That's a very privileged discussion. But I know even with the language of clean energy and dirty energy, that's a very, that still creates an us and them kind of thing where we're expressing a sentiment of kind of holier than thou. Look how we can do it so you can too. Do you think that's particularly? No, I understand. I mean, that's a very important uh, question, and I think there is also uh, a certain level of conceit on the part of the of the so-called developed world in the global north, in which you know it seems like all these policies are arising from the sort of fountainhead of the rational leaders in the, in the Western democracies. In, f in fact, the history tells us that some of the major and important legislations in the history, for example, of curbing the plastics, came from Central Asian countries, including Bangladesh and India. Right, and then was adopted in the in the rest of the world. Traveling around in Egypt in 2000, I saw you know places which had a, everything was recycled effectively, not because there was a policy top-down policy, but because it made economic sense for the people who lived in this area. It's a kind of a grassroots recycling process that exists. And also in 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 the socialist countries during the 60s and 70s, recycling was a default policy. A default policy, one that was you know in, in, enforced by the government, or one was that a, was it, kind of practiced by the individual. Sense. Yeah, because everyone practiced it because there was no alternative. You couldn't buy uh, milk in a plastic uh, plastic bottle, so you have to buy it in a in a glass bottle, and that was recyclable. You have to bring the uh, the last bottle, give it, and then receive a new bottle. You and I think uh, that also kind of touches on the importance of the individual. I mean, we've just we were speaking about it prior to this conversation, but the importance of the individual. Mm. In climate change, I mean, I think we're encouraged now and a lot of the messaging now is around individuals changing their daily habits. And there seems to be a lot of responsibility placed on the individual as opposed to the larger corporations who are mostly responsible for the climate crisis that we're in at the moment. Do you think that some of the, I mean, this is a pretty obvious question, but some of the narrative around climate change is very specific to the individual. Do you think this is a very efficient tactic or do you think? Well, let's put it this way. I mean, it can, it doesn't hurt that everyone is green. That's, that's, that's obvious, right? Things don't normally succeed because they're done in a voluntary way. 
not that people should be forced into doing I mean, yeah, under duress, on. but if if I if I can opt out uh, green behavior, then uh, and and if a majority of people opt out of it, then the result will be relatively invisible. So the question is: Do we coerce people into being green, or do we coerce them by uh, soft measures such as making them feel? guilty or somehow less than valuable and upstanding citizen of a society. So, I mean, if you look at the kind of messaging that's happening now as a result of the various climate uh, direct actions around, I mean, there has been a lot of negative publicity against the things that are happening in the last several years. Um, So the question is how to best approach the large population to understand the relevance. So one thing is, of course, is education. The other thing, on the other hand, is education in the sense that it's that the doing thing is not simply the doing for the planet, but it's doing for yourself. So and and so that it makes sense. So that the green actors are appealing for the individuals, not only purely on the basis of ethical righteousness or whatever you want to call it, but also from an an, a bottom line thing. So it is now the case that becoming a vegan or doing green stuff can be more expensive. Some of my students are doing the ethnography work in the less than privileged neighborhood of Manchester and finding the people who they interview uh, informally suggest that they cannot afford to be vegan because the vegan is for the well-to-do middle classes with disposable income because the vegan product this is what they say of course I'm I you know I don't go down that route to actually calculate but this is the perception this is uh, something that the white middle classes are keen on doing in order to do so-called virtue signaling and virtue signaling from the from the green community has been recognized in academic literature for many years the question is how is the virtue signaling being adopted by the less than privileged who don't find themselves in a position to do the same thing? I was just listening to something that was talking about virtue signaling as kind of a positive force for change. As opposed to, I mean, we think about it now, it's very much so used in the pejorative sense now, if you're virtue signaling about pejorative, but it can also be used to signal the... Well, virtue, there we go. A signal of virtue of the individual. In principle, yes. Of course, we have to understand that the virtue is not not absolutely universal, apart Mm. from the very basic sort of acts and human rights. But virtues are defined, virtue is class-based, virtue is race-based, and virtue is geography-based. What's virtue for me is not necessarily virtue for someone else. So the question is, whose virtue is going to be adopted as a norm that is universal given the global nature of the problem? Mm. And in that case, you, you, you can call it there is a, you know, a, a colonization, the ethical colonization of the world by the virtues that come from a single or relatively limited geographical and historical space. I won't name it. Well, I, I want to harp back on this idea of, I mean, you've just talked about the impact of the climate warrior. Do you want to kind of expand on that? So one, one way to, to think about this is to, again, go back to some of the works that has been done in the history of uh, environmental policy and environmental thinking in the last 20 or 30 years. And one of the academic uh, research papers that's been published in that period uh, looks specifically at the origins of the individual responsibility in environmental matters. I should say that, you know, as a highlight, that, that the, the notion of that the individual action will change the world has now been generally abandoned as a, as a matter of a policy and that these things had, had to be done in a far more systematic and organized manner, especially when it comes to global climate change. Now, what's interesting to know in this particular research paper that the argument was made that the notion of in, in individual responsibility or rather the individualization 
of responsibility was one of the strategies that the large businesses were hoping to introduce through the concept of carbon footprint or the concept of individual carbon footprint in order to make the case that responsibility for the environmental damage comes from the consumers, not from the producers. Do you think that's come to dominate a lot of the conversation we have nowadays? I mean, you've just brought up the whole idea of veganism and virtue no. signaling. Do you think that's that's very much so influenced by the whole narrative of wanting to shift the blame onto the individual? Yeah, it is. The extent to which this is shifting the blame is a matter of, of, of discussion. I think the blame may be a strong word here, but it's the responsibility. Shift the, yeah, responsibility. Yeah, this yeah. responsibility. So the question is, why is that the case? How does it help? Well, it helps in the sense that the people are changing their consumer behavior, which is now con- called the political consumerism, that people are buying certain kinds of things or not buying things or going into kind of a minimalist philosophy of not, not buying or claiming not to buy anything, which again is a form of virtue signaling. So then the the question here is that if the company called British Petroleum, also known as BP, has introduced the notion of carbon footprint in order to show that what that that the individuals require certain carbon footprint in order to have their daily business organized in a proper and civilized way, and that the BP is providing services to the individuals who are contributing to the welfare and the wealth of the national economy, then BP is simply doing the best they can. It's the individual carbon footprint that explains the reason why BP has to be as large as it is as a provider of the services and goods needed in order to for the economy to function. Now, what we see today, and this is the metaphor I use, and I think it's very helpful, but I'd like you to kind of pause and imagine yourself, close your eyes, and to think about this. What we want to do with the, what what I say we, I hate the word we because it's not clear what I mean, but when the world leaders and and, and a policymaker talk about the so-called sustainable development, what a sustainable development really is, is a large-scale surgical operation done on the economy of, of the existing world organism which was grown on carbon hydrates and CO2 and specifically on other greenhouse gases. Everything that we have today is in some way or measure built on oil. So you can say that oil or carbon hydrates is the spine of the current economy. Okay, What the sustainable development is, is the operation whereby we are attempting to remove the oily spine from the world economy and replace it with a different spine without the patient dying. It's a very difficult operation to achieve if you think in these medical terms. How do you remove one type of spine or the different type of spine? Because we're talking is energy. When I'm using spine is meaning an energy. But without at any time seeing that the organism is suffering during the operation and we cannot put him to sleep. I remember one lecture we were in, you were talking about, I mean, everything around you is plastic. You kind of got us to stop and think about whether we could imagine an existence outside of plastic. And I think it's very easy in the modern day to, I think I've been guilty of this thinking as well, to think you can stop Mm -hmm. using these of living, you know, is that we can kind of cut ourselves off from the very unsustainable way in which we live our lives. But what you're saying is it's incredibly hard to do so. It's but but virtually impossible. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, mm. it, been, it would be it would be useful if we could, if we were able to quantify the difficulties in doing so. But in order for this to happen on a global scale, given the nature of the problem, whoever we are, we would need to do more. And this is the where the frustration is beginning to grow. And with frustration, there is a sense of impatience. And with impatience, there is a sense that there is a a switch that can be turned. And with the imagination of a switch in climate change, there is a misrepresentation of climate change is a simple issue. So day-to-day operation of any given economy in the world is the imperative of all the political assemblies around the world, number one. Number two is the long-term policy, and that requires enormous amount of understanding and foresight on the part of the governmentally organized bodies of we now have information of what climate in the world will look like by 2050 if uh, on, on business as usual. So there is no need for going to some kind of a fantasies or, or, or guesswork. Current climate models are, are robust and, and, and they're able to tell us. Uh, they're not fine-grained to tell us what's going to happen in Salford next day, but we understand the trends, right? And these trends are not looking good. We all know that. The question is even the fact that things are going down the drain, there is going to be a tomorrow. And there's going to be a day after tomorrow. So what, you're, so what do you think you'd advocate for then? How do you think you'd engage the public with climate crisis in a way that, you know, gets them to think about it more immediately? I don't know. The public well, I, I don't think that the, 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 the strategy, of, which is known as fear appeal, mm. which is a reliance on some kind of a date in the future by which time we're going, in, we're going into an overdrive mode in a kind of catastrophic. That doesn't work. It didn't work in the case of uh, smoking, anti-smoking campaigns. It generally doesn't work. It may work for, for a limited number of people, a limited time. But again, I'm going back to education. We, we need to understand that this is one of the purposes of the course that I teach in this university for many years. And my students come to me and say, well, what, do, what are you saying? And I say, well, I'm saying is, first of all, the, to recognize the, the nature of the beast. If we misdiagnose climate change to be a, a relatively straightforward environmental issue that can be fixed by doing something or curbing the release of a specific chemical or a specific molecule, we're going to hit the wall because releasing that specific molecule is enabling large numbers of people around the world to survive. Unfortunately, Yes, because there is a path dependency in the development of human civilization, which was for way too long dependent on this oil, which you can say retrospectively, ironically, we were lucky to, f- to have found out given how much efficient and how, how, how relatively cheap it was to produce and to move us with exactly 100 and, what, 125,000 flights a day. Uh, we're looking now at. And by the way, that is equivalent of the carbon emissions coming from the internet and the service around the world. So currently we have and predicted that the internet will surpass aviation within the next couple of years. To me, it is always fascinating to, to see that there is a an enormous uh, sort of a stigma attached to uh, aviation when similar carbon emissions are coming from these beautiful uh, screen that we're using to record this uh, heavy uh, several giga by document in which an individual expressing these views about climate change. But I would say in, in response to that, we can't really think of anything outside of the very simplistic terms that that we're confronted with. I mean, yeah. you know, it's difficult to think of climate change as 
this multifactorial mass mass change how do you think we I absolutely agree with you I mean you put it so brilliantly and you know it's not it's not about simplicity it's about complexity however there is another element I think that the science the climate communication who has for years been going towards the indiscriminate population out there on the other side of, of of the media in hoping that we were basically casting the the net widely and whatever we caught it's like fishing with dynamite you you throw uh, the news that the climate is going into a breakdown by 2050 and hope that, that people will react and and come back and help the earth that type of fishing didn't really succeed and was very damaging to young people who now live in what is recognized as a climate anxiety. Now, what has had to be done and what is being done as we speak is communicating this information of complexity to those who are in a position to make long-term policy in government. It's important that we have the public works which are responding to the educated analysis and the foresight and the planning of the people in the government who are the most educated and who should be most educated rather than reacting in a kind of an instinctive fashion to this or that heat wave and then saying climate change is upon us and we have to do something. This is not the right way. This is childish. We, we need to understand that climate change is responsible for beautiful days in this country as much as for bad days. When you have a sunny day in London, blame climate change. Because climate change is not some kind of an evil genius sitting behind the, behind the clouds and coming only when it's really bad weather. Climate change is a trend reflecting the increasing concentration of CO2, which is through turbulence mixed relatively homogeneously throughout the troposphere, which is between 7 and 11 kilometers above the ground level, right? So climate change is responsible for the most beautiful weather. Okay, and this is what we and this is what you know. For example, President Obama said it many many years ago in two thousand, and I believe that the climate change is responsible for every weather event. This was brilliant. This shows level of of, of knowledge and, and information that we need for everyone to understand. This is not something that depends of when things go wrong. This is something that's happening every single day and will continue to happen in the wage we cannot predict on such a small temporal scale as day by day. And so, for me, it is crucial that we understand that on one hand the world society has to function on 24 hours seven uh, and things have to be done given the infrastructures and the way of doing things we have done and inherited from the past on the other hand do we know where we're going how are we, how are we going to need to change in order to have a different kind of world again it's that surgery i was talking about we are now in the process of beginning of the replacement of the energy spine from an old organism into a new organism we hope that the op operation will succeed but we also hope that in the process of operation that all the organs will be equally developing. Well, I think that's a very good place to end on. Do you think there's any, any final notes that you want to add? And to recognise climate change as an, on, as an ongoing issue, and, but also one that's incredibly complex to navigate and one that requires... Absolutely, and I and this is what, what what is critical. Recognition of complexity doesn't prevent anyone for immediate action on many in many places. It's not postponing things. It is that those who are in a position to make change in the party in the public recognize that the change is good for everyone. 
So this is the, the position of some of the papers that have been developing during the early 2010s, and that's the specifically the Hartwell paper in which it was argued that in order for us to achieve what we want to do, which is the, the, the carbon neutral, although I would say carbon zero probably in the end, the world, we need to have an incentive which is not only just that. We also need to be living in a better world at the time as a result of that. If we lived in higher poverty, higher crime rates, more racism, more epidemics in a carbon neutral or carbon zero world, that would be really a, that would have anything. been a failure. Yeah, yeah. we haven't really solved anything. Yeah. So the question is, how do we? This is the this is this is the metaphor of the operation. How do we keep the organism not just living but even healthier while we change the spine and the brain of of, of it? Well, that's that's brilliant. Thank you very much. Thank you, Susan. Thank it's you. Great. Thank you so much again to Vlad for coming on to talk to me. We had such an interesting conversation and it gave me a lot of food for thought afterwards. As always, anything that we talked about will be in the show's notes along with any further reading and make sure you're following our Instagram and Twitter for any updates. And make sure to tune in next week for Amelia's episode of What Science. Until next time.